Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. It's our weekly marriage hour today on Trending, and we're diving into a hot topic that will be all the more not just controversial, but relevant in the months and really year to come. We have in the United States a Supreme Court case known as Obergefell versus Hodges that made same-sex marriage the law of the land in the United States, but that was in the face of countless states, the majority of states in the United States actually passing laws and actual amendments to their state constitution saying that marriage is between one man and one woman. What we're seeing in the next couple of years is the likely overturning of Obergefell versus Hodges. And with that, trigger laws, just like with Roe versus Wade, will go into effect. And fascinating enough, even states such as California, among many others, passed amendments to the state constitution that included marriage between one man and one woman. And so what we are going to see in the days and weeks to come is a conversation yet again over same-sex relationships and in particular same-sex parenting. Joining me today to discuss this particular topic is Father Paul Sullins. He's a senior researcher and associate of the Ruth Institute. He recently retired as a professor of sociology at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Father and doctor, we'll call him doctor as well, Dr. Sullins is a leader in the field of research on same-sex parenting and its implications for childhood development. So this is fascinating to look at it from not only a Catholic perspective to see how sociology confirms and affirms the fundamental idea that children need a mom and a dad, and specifically and ideally their mom and their dad, and that sex matters. And no matter how people may say we're sexist or we're not open to, quote, love being love, there's much to be said from a practical, again, sociological perspective that confirms the Catholic Church's teaching that marriage is between one man and one woman and that children do reserve and have a right to their mom and dad. So joining me today to talk first about the implications of same-sex parenting is Father Paul Sullins. Father, welcome to Trending. Hello, Timory. It's so uh, I'm so glad to be with you this afternoon. Uh, well, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I, you just quoted uh, Donum Vitae, which is the 1987 document that says that children have the right to their own joint biological parents. That's really at the heart of this issue. Uh, it's not uh, heterosexual versus homosexual. Uh, it, it is the basic right of every child to have access to their mother and their father. Not just a man and a woman, the church says, but their own mother and their own father. And that, uh, the Thomists would say that orders sex and sex relations between persons, uh, we might use the word orients so that people might understand that better. But what it does, what it means is that uh, love is not love when you mix uh, sexual relations into it. Because mm -hmm. um, sexual relations, when done in God's way, are generative. They have the capacity to bring forth new life. 
And that reorients our whole understandings of sex relations. Well, I'm not sure that I'm st sticking to the topic that you wanted me to talk about, but uh, I have studied uh, 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 children with same-sex parents in the United States. So let me just uh, throw out a few statistics and, and, and facts about that to Please get us do. started. Uh, as you know, I've, um, I've given you the links to a couple of um, cloud folders um, and some uh, resource documents uh, that contain pretty much all these facts that I'm going to talk about and the studies that are cited uh, that support them. So, uh, you know, on the radio, I, I don't have an opportunity to uh, note all the citations, but they're in those documents that you can make available to the listeners. But Yes, we will um, in the episode in, notes for today's show. In the United States, there are about a million um, uh, same-sex couples. Uh, the, the census estimates uh, 980,000, give or take. Uh, and uh, about uh, 15 to 20% of those couples uh, are raising children, twice as many lesbian couples as uh, gay male couples. Uh, so um, uh, among heterosexual families, uh, about 60% are raising children, about 90% raise children at one time or another. Uh, among same-sex uh, families, uh, it, only about a quarter uh, ever are raising children, and uh, it's usually 27% uh, of lesbian couples, about half that many gay male couples. Uh, and what we know from uh, population research is that the children that are in the care of those couples uh, suffer from a variety of developmental and emotional disorders uh, that... Um, uh, children in the general population that is raised by uh, men and women uh, do not face. Uh, and so my research, along with other research, has found that uh, children in the care of same-sex couples uh, have about twice the risk of uh, developing emotional problems, including depression, anxiety, misbehavior, poor relationships with peers, inability to concentrate. Uh, they're about twice as likely to have seen a doctor or to have taken medication for a psychological condition in the past year. Um, a lot of people are surprised to hear that the risk of emotional problems and a lot of the problems faced by children with same-sex parents are higher if their children, if, they, if their same-sex parents are married as opposed to just cohabiting. Interesting, generally can you repeat that again, just to be clear? Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, generally speaking, if, if a same-sex couple is married rather than just cohabiting, the outcomes are worse for uh, the children involved, uh, and the relationship is is not as healthy and solid. It's uh, almost the opposite of the effect of marriage among heterosexual folks. Why do you think um, that is? I I don't know exactly why it is. If you're asking me as a as a scientist, I have to say we don't have sufficient research. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's um, uh, it's been documented. I have found it myself on two different. Um, uh, uh, population uh, representative studies, and it's reported been reported by other studies. In fact, uh, married same-sex couples tend not to stay together as long mm -hmm. as um, uh, cohabiting same-sex couples. And uh, if they have uh, children, uh, usually when heterosexual couples have children, it helps to bind them together so that their relationship is longer lasting. The opposite happens with uh, same-sex couples. Uh, if they acquire children in one way or another, uh, it predicts a, sh a 
sooner breakup of that relationship, particularly among lesbian couples. Um, well, uh, uh, children uh, with same-sex couples are more likely to have experienced the breakup of a parental relationship prior to entering into that relationship with same-sex couples. Now, that might account for much of the distress that they experience. Uh, and uh, LGBT advocates will say, well, then it's not really related to the sexual orientation. And I would agree with that. Uh, there are uh, very few studies that find that persons who have same-sex attraction uh, or have a declare a uh, LGBT sexual orientation are by that fact somehow deficient as parents or worse as parents. What the, the uh, problems come from is the nature of the relationship. The idea <clears throat> that two men or two women uh, can bring to children the same kind of benefits psychologically and developmentally that a man and a woman can is false. Uh, and so the insistence by two men or two women to uh, acquire a child uh, is, uh, is something that leads to uh, less good, we would say, di disoptimal outcomes for those children. Um, so um, the, the problems that uh, children with same-sex parents face uh, continue uh, into adulthood. Uh, I've done a couple of studies that have shown where that where the uh, measures of uh, depression, for example, uh, in their teenage years are not that different from the general population. Uh, by the time they get into their late 20s, they're much higher than the general population. Um, uh, by Interesting. Age so just to clarify, as you're talking about this, yeah. and if you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. That's Father Paul Sullins, who has been historically a professor of sociology at the Catholic University of America. And he has, again, a PhD in talking in sociology. So we're looking at this issue of the implications of same-sex parenting on children from a sociological perspective. We haven't even touched on the Catholic view other than briefly at the beginning. These are pure facts and data, but something you just mentioned that was really interesting, Father Solons, was where you said that there's a similar uh, rate when you get into the teenage years of you know, challenges that kids are facing. We could mention mm -hmm. you know, predominant things such as anxiety and depression, but then at the end of the day, once you get into the 20-year-old age range, kids who were maybe paralleling the same societal trends, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual parents raising them, that they actually end up experiencing, is this correct, more severe depression and anxiety into their yes. young adult life? Yes. The study on that I published is called Invisible Victims, Late Onset Depression Among Children with Same-Sex Parents. And what I found, I was looking at the National Longitudinal Survey of Adolescent to Adult Health. So it's uh, the largest, uh, best longitudinal study of the U.S. population. They took a sample of um, junior high students in 1995, uh, and they interviewed them extensively, hundreds of questions. There were 20,000 students. And then they interviewed these same exact persons again, in uh, 2002 and then again in 2008. Uh, and so we had a measure of the level of depression as teenagers. And the average age uh, in junior high school was 15. Um, and at age 15, the children with same-sex parents had about the same level of depression as the general population of children, which is just under 20%. Um, but by age 28, 
uh, by the third interview of that sample, the, the children with uh, normal man-woman parents, uh, still about 20% of them had depression, which is what you would expect. Uh, but over half of the children who had same-sex parents had developed depression during that time, 51% compared to just 18% in the general population. So a lot of the problems, uh, like uh, with all problems that children face with their parents, a lot of them go underground and really don't mm -hmm. come out until they begin to face their own issues in their 20s and sometimes early 30s, and forming their own families and yeah, so on. That's very interesting, Father Solons, because as you're mentioning, this is in the thick of that time frame, late 20s and early 30s, mm -hmm. that usually are uh, years that really set the trajectory of your life, whether it be years right. where you're getting married, having children, really setting up right. your career, maybe working extra hard in your career to prepare for what you want mm -hmm. to do later. So those mm -hmm. are very fundamental and I wouldn't say formative years, but I would say informative years for how the rest of your life will go. And so you're you're saying the rate of depression and anxiety is a very severe and is a sense, in a sense, a set of disorientation is occurring for now these children who were raised by same-sex parents and now they're adults trying to figure things out for themselves. Right. There's a whole series of things. So it, the women were affected worse than men. Of course, women typically are more prone to depression in their uh, late teens and 20s than men are. But by age 30, the women who had same-sex parents in this sample were only half as likely to be married or to be in any relationship that had lasted longer than three years. They were only as a third as likely to have ever been pregnant. Um, the, the men and the women were more likely to smoke, to use marijuana, to have been arrested, uh, and to have pled guilty when they were arrested. Uh, three times more likely to have had a marital affair or, or to be unemployed. Uh, and I could just go on and on down the list, but a whole host of problems that uh, are associated with the fact that these children grew up with uh, same-sex parents. Uh, now, I want to say, uh, you know, one of the things about uh, gay marriage as an idea is that when you decompose the um, uh, man-woman relationship in marriage, uh, to include something called gay marriage, you really don't create one additional thing. You, you create two additional things that are very different. Uh, and that is uh, a marriage between a man and a man uh, and a marriage between a woman and a woman. So gay male marriages and lesbian marriages are very different from each other, just mm -hmm. as much as men and women are very different from each other. Uh, and so there are different kinds of outcomes uh, depending on whether the child grew up with uh, lesbians or with uh, gay male parents. As I said, uh, they're twice as likely to have had lesbian parents. Lesbians tend to um, acquire children, uh, uh, either adopt or to bring them in from a former relationship or to um, uh, conceive them through um, uh, in medical interventions, um, uh, mm -hmm. donor donor conceived children and, and right. things like that. Um, and so um, most of what we know relates to children who are raised by lesbians. So, so far, what I've been telling you is mostly about children raised by lesbians. We don't know a whole lot uh, about children who are raised by uh, two men, um, mm -hmm. but we're learning. 
Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you mentioned some of this because there is a trend that is different but correlates as we have predominantly in the LGB community more parents or people who are parenting mm-hmm. who are in same-sex relationships who are women uh, versus at the same time you're seeing this sensation on social media today of what's referred to as Momunes. In fact, there are going to be some reality TV shows coming out about this, about some of the popular social media influencers who have um. ditched their husbands, refused to get back together, and are moving yeah. in together. And they talk about how great life is when you have other women taking care of you and helping to take care of your children. And I talked oh, about it a few weeks ago. We'll post a link in the episode notes to that conversation. And it's interesting because there is a significance to the fact that women have something radically different to offer to men. And I think it's interesting when you mention that when we start to engage in same-sex parental relationships, it's radically different when you have two men versus two women who are parenting. And I know there's a lot of celebration today in, you know, of course, the feminist culture of female empowerment, women's empowerment. But there's a lot of support for this mom type of mindset that I think does cross over into the topic of homosexuality and parenting if you identify as a lesbian as well. I'd be curious on your thoughts there. Well, we're in a society that uh, no longer experiences some large extended families. Uh, Like most most societies in most areas of the world, you had a situation where uh, you'd have two or three generations that would be living either in the same house or very close uh, to one another and would provide lots of support. Uh, there are lots of folk, even today, uh, who live, at, you know, a young couple uh, will have uh, parents or siblings living near them. Uh, and uh, those persons provide lots of support. They'll come and help ter- take care of the children and they bring uh, a- another set of personalities for them to interact with uh, and kind of um, open up their world. We don't have that so much anymore, so I'm not surprised that people would be seeking for some sort of mm-hmm. community right. um, to to uh, to replace that. Um, the The problem, of course, is if if you only have a community of women, um, you you don't have the balance of parenting inputs that um, we know uh, lead to the best outcomes for children. Now, the the main theory about uh, these kind of relationships comes from psychology. It's called the the attachment theory. John Bowlby is the primary writer. And uh, the idea is that uh, children learn early on an attachment to their mother uh, in the first uh, months of life. Uh, But shortly after that, um, they they also start to learn to detach from the mother uh, and to engage and attach the father. And so the Fathers generally bring um, an ability to be open to new experiences, a, a kind of a, a risk uh, a, um, engagement for a child. Mothers bring security and care. Uh, fathers bring uh, it, it exploration and, and uh, pushing some of the boundaries, uh, generally speaking, right? There, mm-hmm. these, there are exceptions to all of these, but as a general rule, uh, men... Uh, relate to children very differently uh, than uh, women do, mm-hmm. and and children we have you know cognitive development is related to the uh, stimulation that often comes from a father when he'll take the child and kind of throw it around a little bit or throw it up in the air and catch it and mom is going oh please be careful um, 
that's that's really helpful. Throwing a ball and being able to catch it, which is something that you learn, most of us learn from our fathers, is also a, an early, very important skill for uh, cognitive development. Uh, children who learn to follow a ball and catch it can much more easily learn to follow uh, marks across a page and, and follow letters and learn to read. And so it it uh, it feeds into their ability to grow uh, intellectually in lots of ways that we're only beginning uh, to really understand. Um, and so uh, the, the presence of both of those mm -hmm. uh, research supports the idea of the church that a child has the right to both their joint biological parents, that that is a very strong uh, natural outcome. Uh, and so and, when you only have uh, uh, two parents of the same sex, that's a problem. Now, you also have other complications because it's different if you're a girl with two mothers than if you're a boy with two mothers. And it, it's not hard to understand even uh, uh, just by thinking about it. Uh, what does a young man do when he turns of an age and he starts to have hair growing on his face and he wants yes, to know right. how to deal with some of those how things? To be a man. And he doesn't have a father yeah. figure. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. And so, to, to their credit, many lesbian couples purposely seek out father figures uh, for their uh, boy children. Uh, and so, they, they try to um, mitigate uh, the trouble mm -hmm. of this. They're, they're not totally successful. Yeah. Yep, and but I mean, I even think of the um, high-level academic Camila Pagalia, who is a self-proclaimed feminist lesbian. She has, I believe it's a son, and she's intentionally exposed him to male relationships. She actually doesn't even support, uh, or at least she didn't used to support same-sex marriage. She thinks that kids actually need moms and dads, and she's quite the contradiction between what she's living, but also what she advocates for and emphasizes. And so at the end of the day, there is this need for people to fill in that void that I think is so significant, Father Solons. If you're just joining us here on Trending with Timory, that's Father Paul Solons diving into the immense academic research from a sociological perspective of the implications of same-sex parenting on children. And we're seeing negative health, health outcomes, not just in adolescent years, but going into adult life. It's a disorientation that's occurring. Kids need moms and dads. This is what the Catholic Church upholds. And the bottom line is, is that we see this supported in sociology. The research is there. Father Paul Solons is with us now. We're posting links to much of his research that he's given us. You can check out many of those studies. We're going to come back, talk a little bit more about same-sex parenting, and also dive into the risk in same-sex relationships. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Joining me today on Trending is Father Paul Solens. He is a sociologist as well, holding a PhD. He's a professor of sociology at the Catholic University of America. And we're diving deep into the research on the implications we just discussed of same-sex parenting on children. If you missed that, please listen, because this is a debate that is going to be raging in the next 
months and year to come. I do believe that Obergefell versus Hodges will be overturned by the Supreme Court. And what will happen, just like Roe v. Wade being overturned, states will trigger their existing laws. And many of those laws, and might I argue constitutional amendments, such as in California, Praise the Lord at this time. We have a constitutional amendment waiting to go into uh, enforcement that upholds marriage between one man and one woman. People find that offensive. They say, well, love is love. Who are you to say who should and shouldn't parent children, who should and shouldn't get married? We're going to tackle some of these arguments talking about the harm, as we've discussed, of same-sex parenting on children, which we've already covered. I do want to take a question on that, but we're also going to talk about the risks in same-sex relationships. We're not just taking the Catholic perspective, but we're showing how sociology affirms what the Catholic Church has taught all along. I do want to take a question, though, on the topic of same-sex parenting before we transition here. Dr. Chris from El Cajon is on the line, has a question about same-sex parenting. Welcome to Trending. What is your question today for Father Paul Solens? Yes. Well, first off, fascinating outcomes. Uh, thank you for sharing. Um, I am curious, though, I, I didn't, and maybe I missed it at the beginning, but what, what was the population of those adopted by these uh, same-sex families? Um, my understanding is that quite often same-sex parents are going through the foster care system, and quite often they have uh, some challenging upbringing, uh, challenging family dyma- dynamics, uh, biology and drug exposure, and then take that into a foster situation, you get the attachment issues that uh, Padre mentioned a few minutes ago. So just kind of curious as to what does the population look like and how has that been taken into account to the outcomes he's come up with? This is a great yeah, question, Dr. Chris. Go ahead. Do you have an answer, Father Solens, for that? Do you know the that statistical is a, That is up? an excellent question. Uh, I, none of the statistics that I presented uh, so far uh, involve any adopted children. Uh, they're all children that are... Now, you have to make a distinction when you're talking about uh, adopted children by same-sex couples, but they they uh, do not include any two-parent adopted children, uh, which is what we generally think of when we t- and what you're talking about when you're talking about uh, high-risk children being adopted by same-sex couples. Um, uh, all all of the children in the studies that I've cited so far uh, are children that are the uh, own children uh, of. Uh, the parents, they're either um, uh, uh, the biological child of one of the parents prior to the relationship with another uh, same-sex person um, uh, or um, conceived through um, planned parenting um, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, um, some of these children have been adopted by one of the parents because what happens when uh, two same-sex persons uh, Uh, get married or form a relationship, and one of them brings a child into the relationship, often the other parent wants to have a genuine, bona fide Mm -hmm. uh, parental connection with that child. And so they'll go through the adoption process and adopt that child uh, alongside their own biological parent. That often happens among lesbian couples, um, Mm -hmm. not so much among gay male couples. Uh, But it does illustrate one of the difficulties faced by two parents of the same sex is what we have to realize is that every child that is with two parents of the same sex has been alienated from one of the or more of their own natural parents. Um, and this is why sometimes I don't refer to children with same sex parents as being with parents at all. Because every set of so-called same-sex parents really consists of 
at most one parent and one non-parent, and often two non-parents, as you've pointed out. Um, so it's a different thing entirely than to be raised by your your own two parents. Everyone listening to this program has two parents, one of which is a man and the other of which is a woman. Um, it's a, a biological, uh, universal characteristic of the human race. We all have a mother and a father. But children with same-sex so-called parents have been separated without their knowledge or consent from one, from either their mother or their father. And that's really the root of the kind of harm that comes, the relative harm that comes for children with same-sex parents. Well, we want to move into talking about same-sex relationships more yes, generally. Yes, I do want to marriage. talk about that in just a moment, but I do want to make a couple comments. I know as Dr. Chris mm-hmm. is asking this question, I'm just thinking about the foster care system, and it's a mess. And I think that's important we say when we talk about the foster care system. It's an absolute yeah. mess. I know, Dr. Chris, you're a psychologist, and know Father Paul Solans as a sociologist, you both know this. We need to fix the foster care system. That's a whole nother monkey. But what we do know and what we're emphasizing it from the perspective of both as being Catholics and from sociology, that kids need both a mom and a dad. And this is why we're fighting within the context of the Catholic Church right now for Catholic charities, which many of whom have shut down any adoption agencies, uh, for us to place children in the instances of adoption with parents who are a mother and a father. Because when a child is in a foster care system or being placed for adoption, those children, just like any other children, need and have a right to a mother and a father. And if their biological parents cannot be there, we need to be prioritizing, especially in these circumstances, that these children are entering into stable homes with a mom and a dad. And I think that's important that we keep to that messaging when we discuss this topic uh, in I just have to say, again, it's another side topic, but we as Catholics, we as people of faith need to step up and be willing to even step into the messy situation of foster care systems and be willing to help foster some of these kids who are really floundering and stable homes that can help do that. It's a whole nother topic in and of itself, but I think it's worth mentioning yep. if you you feel called. Thanks for that call, Dr. Chris. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio with Father Paul Solens from the Ruth Institute, which, by the way, is just an absolute gold mine of research and information. You're one of the leading researchers there at the Ruth Institute. We're posting links on social media as well as in the episode notes to your well-gathered and organized research and data on these hard issues that help you to respond with simple and clear facts that uphold from a Catholic perspective, but also from a secular sociological perspective as well. So let's talk a little bit, Father Solens, now about uh-huh. from the sociological perspective of the risks in same-sex relationships in general. Yeah, sure. Um, well, as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, um, when you have uh, same-sex marriage or same-sex relationships, you have to distinguish between male-male relationships and female-female relationships because they, they are very different. Uh, and um, one of the biggest differences uh, is that uh, gay-male relationships uh, and gay-male marriages uh, do not normally have an expectation of sexual exclusivity. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there is very little of what we would think of as sexual fidelity uh, among gay male couples. Uh, study, repeated studies have found that almost none of them are actually monogamous. Um, 
most of them uh, have some sort of agreement, either explicit or tacit, that will tolerate sexual relations outside of the uh, marriage or uh, cohabiting relationship between the partners. Um, and so that's a very different kind of um, uh, relational reality uh, compared to uh, male-female uh, man-woman marriages. Um, uh, the largest study that did this uh, looked at 156 gay male couples, uh, and they found that only seven of them uh, had a completely exclusive sexual relationship. Uh, they also found that the majority of the relationship between the gay male couples lasted less than five years. Uh, and so mm -hmm. that's an another point of difference. Uh, gay gay couples tend to be much less stable. Yeah, lack of than, a stable um, environment. Who wants that? I mean, that? That's a question I have. I know we live in a culture that says, you know, hey, enjoy as many partners as you want. But at the end of the day, I think everyone wants stability, commitment, longevity, to be known and known by another human being for life. And that's not what we're seeing in these same-sex relationships today. Yet that's what they're trying to imitate in so-called same-sex marriage that isn't happening. And here we are. How long has it been? Well over. And we're working our way toward, like, what, eight years now versus since Obergefell mm -hmm. versus Hodges became the rule across the United States. And we're not seeing that stability that they so desired to imitate. Yeah, it, it would be great to, let's say, to encourage more stability among uh, same-sex couples, uh, for sure. Uh, but to call it marriage uh, really misrepresents uh, the nature of the relationship. So uh, just to cite one study, um, this was a, a study done by Gary Gates, who is a, a, a pro-LGBT activist um, and scholar. Uh, he looked at the 2000 census uh, and found that the uh, percentage of uh, opposite sex couples that still lived together, they co-resided at the same address after five years, 87% of married opposite-sex couples did so. Only 44% of same-sex couples still did so. So it's not, it's almost twice the level of stability among the opposite-sex couples in that study. That's uh, typical. Uh, in fact, those findings are, are um, more favorable for uh, uh, same-sex relationship than other studies, but a lot of good studies that have shown the much higher rate of instability of breakup uh, among same-sex couples. I mentioned earlier that when the same-sex couple acquires children, they tend to uh, break up uh, even even more frequently or even sooner than the same-sex couples who do not have children, and that uh, relates to a whole set of dynamics among lesbian couples. When they get children, uh, they're typically very intentional about doing this. They, they talk a lot together about how they want to uh, acquire these children or to, to uh, raise these children. There, there's a lot of, um, of, of um, emotional surveillance uh, and investment in this. And so what often happens uh, is that they'll have a child, if, Let's take, for example, a planned uh, parenting by the lesbian couples, which happens uh, increasingly, where they'll, they'll go to a, a sperm bank or they'll get a donor mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, and will inseminate. Now, here you are, the, the lesbian couple, you're planning to do this. The first question is, which one of us is going to be inseminated and be the biological mother of this child? Mm-hmm. And that's a big mm-hmm. discussion. Yes. And often yes. they say, well, I'll do the first one and you do the second one. And we'll both love them just like they're our own. But what happens is after that child is born, there's a natural connection with the biological mother and the other mother, which is called usually the social mother, begins to feel neglected, begins, you know, used to have all the attention of the other woman. And now this Mm -hmm. woman is putting a lot of attention on the child and there becomes uh, tension in that relationship, which... Uh, often leads to the dissolution of that relationship. And again, coming how, back to it's damaging for the couples, the individuals in the relationship, not just the children. And I'll just right. give an interesting example of this. I don't know if you saw it in the news, but 90s boy band sensation NSYNC singer Lance Bass came out in the media about a month or two ago, right after Khloe Kardashian commented on the sterility and how she had a hard time bonding with her child conceived via surrogacy. Well, Lance Bass, the singer, came out saying the same thing, and he actually shared how for the full, first full year, and by the way, side note, if you don't know lance bass came out as gay many years ago and has been in a same-sex relationship and had a child via surrogate as well and he has commented that for the first full year of his life that child those children wanted no physical contact whatsoever from him they would push him away didn't want to cuddle nothing and he commented how when he would go to his mom's house how the babies would lighten up and want to be snuggled by the mom and it's so sad for the sake of the children but it's also sad for the sake of lance bass as well who is trying to again emulate the sense of the family dynamic mom dad children yet it's not possible when we throw surrogacy and same-sex relationships in there it's hurting the very people who wanted legalized marriage and the rights to have children in these circumstances. Yeah, it's, it's a sad thing. It, it's like uh, the lies of sin always are like that. It's, you know, the, the very first woman heard a, a serpent say to her, no, you won't surely die. You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You can, mm-hmm. and, and we find through experience that these things that look so good, so enticing, turn out to be destructive to us. Yes. Uh, I have a question for you, Father. You know, one of the sure. questions people will often throw out there, and if you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Timmy. That's Father Paul Solons from the Ruth Institute. He is a sociologist as well at the PhD level, and we're talking about the risks of same-sex relationships. We earlier talked about the implication of same-sex parenting, controversial topics. I hope you'll listen to the episode. You can go to relevantradio.com forward slash trending to reference all of the notes and the studies, the many studies that are being referenced here as well. But here's the question. Many people will say love is love. So the question is, if they love each other and they are consenting, isn't that okay? Well, it it depends what you mean by okay, I guess. Uh, But love is not love. There are many, many different kinds of love. Uh, And and, uh, when you're talking about sexual love, um, any expression of sexual love that impedes the uh, procreation of a child uh, is not love. It, it doesn't live up to the standard and the, the beauty that God created us to experience when we have sexual love. You know, uh, we Catholics hold, um, it, all Bible believers hold, that uh, sexual love 
is a, a reflection of the relationship of God in the Trinity. St. Paul says it, it mirrors to us the mystery of Christ in the church. Uh, and that makes it something very holy and very special. But if we're going to mirror God's love, you have to think of what God's love is like. And what God's love does is to call new life into being. And, and the sexual love of a man and a woman is the only kind of love on this planet that can create new human life. Mm. Uh, the, the love of two men or of two women, no matter how uh, they feel that emotionally, cannot create new human life. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's a non-generative love. It's a sterile kind of love in that sense. Uh, and in, in many other senses that relate to the raising of those children, mm -hmm. uh, it is just not the same. And I think when we're talking about the harm to the individuals in the same-sex relationship, when people say, but if love is love and they're consenting, isn't it okay? Part of the reason why we cite all of the damage that is done to the individuals involved in that relationship is because... I think many enter into this without informed consent. They don't know the fallout. And the reality is, is that the harm is prevalent when we are sexually deviant from the way God intended for the blueprint of the human person and the body to engage on a sexual level. And so, no, love isn't just love when we know even if people who love each other are supposedly consenting, they don't realize that at the end of the day, what they're consenting to is so damaging for their bodies. And this is why when we talk about laws, which is part of the context of this conversation, our laws are meant to uphold the natural law of the human person, the human body. And we know as Catholics, that's what God designed. And that's why we're able to see how all this research you're presenting, even, I mean, we didn't even tie in the topic that, you know, people in same-sex relationships have a shorter life expectancy. There's so many reasons for this. This is the way the body complements one another. And so you're more susceptible to various diseases and damage to the body. Father Solens, I know there's so much more for us to unpack on this topic. We're going to have to have you back to discuss. But I know the Ruth Institute, as always, is there with excellent information. And you have done a tremendous amount of research, have published research on this topic, along with many other pieces of data. We're going to refer to the ruthinstitute.org and post links to much of the data that you have cited. It's a great place to go with factual information to take up this conversation. It's the ruthinstitute.org. Again, ruthinstitute.org. We'll post that on social media as well in the show notes. Thank you so much, Father Paul Solons, for joining us today. I'll be right back to talk about Pope St. John Paul II, Theology of the Body. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Fascinating headline was sent me earlier this week. Couples with joint checking accounts are happier. It was really interesting to dive into the data here. It's actually coming out of Oxford Academic Journal of Consumer Research. This is the title of the study. Con common sense, bank account structures and couples relationship dynamics. Common sense, get its plan words, common sense, common sense and having common sense, dollars, nickels and dimes together makes a difference. Here's what was fascinating. So what happened when a body of research was done assigning randomly engaged couples and newlywed couples 
some joint banking accounts and others non-joint banking accounts. They studied this over a course of a couple of years. And what they saw in the research is that those couples who did not have joint banking accounts, but instead had separate banking accounts, saw a decline over the course of the first two years of their marriage that went side by side with not having joint banking accounts. On the other side, there was sustained and stronger relationships throughout for those couples who had joint banking accounts. Now, this was an interesting study. The data I thought was pretty good on here, the research, the methodology, even how they randomly assigned engaged and newlywed couples here and followed them over the course of a handful of years. It was interesting because there are three key areas I want to touch on here. What they saw the areas that were influenced with joint versus non-joint checking accounts among people who are married in the first handful of years of their lives was that there's what how this influenced one their thoughts and feelings about money how their aligned goals with regard to money occurred and then finally how they had that communal norm and adherence to how money was spent it was fascinating to see some of this and what's the bottom line here is that people should i say married people who have joint checking accounts are happier that's what the study pointed to they have greater sense of longevity sustained longer relationships throughout the relationship and i think it's interesting because i remember talking about this years ago probably Oh, goodness, about eight years ago on the radio. And I talked about this from the perspective that as I was maybe thinking about this for the first time, many people who I knew said, oh, yeah, I have a separate checking account for my spouse. And they started telling me stories, stories out here where one friend of mine said, yeah, I pay the mortgage and the insurance. She pays everything else or giving examples of, you know, she can use her discretionary income and I have these key bills and she's just in charge of that one. And it's just easier that way. We've always had it. We never thought there was any reason to change when we got married. But here's what's interesting to me. Number one, this whole idea of checking accounts, you know, time, things evolve with time and how checking and bank accounts work today versus 200 years ago, very different. Many people would just hold on to their own money and sure, a spouse could hide and hold a separate stash of money from the other. But at the end of the day, I think that we've always had to have a sense of communication, collaboration, cooperation when it comes to goods to be bartered, what we use to sustain our lives and have at the end of the day provisions. I think that's what I want to shift this conversation to be about is this idea of provisions that I hope that we change our mindset as Catholics with regard to how we look at money. And we're called as Catholics to be good stewards of everything we have from the material goods we have to the money that we have to our talents and our bodies to be good stewards, understanding that everything we have, even those things that we work for, everything, it's all a gift from God. And so what I really try to shift my mindset with regarding money is that it's not money. It's not how much I have. It's provisions. The provisions necessary to provide for the life needs that we have. And when we talk about provisions, we have a focus more so on needs versus wants. Needs versus wants is another important debate in the whole financial conversation. But what's interesting, bringing this back to the whole Oxford academic research that was published having to do with joint checking accounts, if couples who have joint checking accounts are happier, they have a 
closer aligned goal than couples who have non-joint checking accounts, as we saw in the research. Their thoughts and feelings about money tended to collide in a positive way versus in a negative sense. They were able to align their conversations about money, even their feelings and thoughts, and they were able to work toward goals. But also they had a sense of adherence to communal norms. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that they were adhering to the needs of the family union, not just one over the other. That comes back to this whole idea of provisions. And I think in marriage, when we talk about provisions and monetary needs, at the end of the day, I think those three C's that are so important in marriage, communication, collaboration, and cooperation have to be there. And I just don't see how you can do that when there's a lack of total transparency and truth. And I think this is important from many perspectives. The prevalence of pornography today, hey, you might know if someone's not know if someone's paying for a certain addiction or habit you know maybe they're using OnlyFans. maybe they're using other so-called adult content websites you know, if your spouse is and you see your checking account you see things are lower not that you're having to sit there and spy on your spouse but that there's a level of accountability for what we do you know scripture especially the proverbs talk so much about being transparent walking a straight and narrow path not following a crooked path and i think there's much to be said about one of the significant idols in our culture today, and that is money. Why would we allow something that is so tempting as money to be something that we don't totally collaborate on, that we don't have absolute truth and transparency over? And sure, you could say, hey, so-and-so has my passwords. They can see the bank statements. That's great. Again, this isn't a conversation about spying or watching everything your spouse does, but that there's awareness and I think that's part of what's so great about marriage is that marriage allows for us to have a sense of culpability and accountability before someone else. When priests, religious, enter into a religious order, they're to submit obediently to the rules of their order, to the guidance of their superiors. Well, within marriage, there's supposed to be a sense of mutual submission. And again, as the church teaches, if you read St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, there is a sense of a hierarchy within marriage. That's how the world works. That's how the created world was made by God. There's even a hierarchy among the angels. Does that make someone less than another? No, it just means that there's proper order. And I think that even studies such as this Oxford academic study pointing to the fact that couples are happier when they have joint checking accounts points to much that can be discussed within the context of marriage, money, seeing things as provisions. And also, I think this is an important caveat that spouses don't see this as my income versus your income, but that these are the provisions God has allowed through mutual gifts, one upholding the other. Sometimes that means one spouse work home, doing work in home to support the work that's done outside of the home. At the end of the day, the provisions are joint for the family and that that cooperation is occurring. I think this is a great secular study to dive into and see the influence. We'll pick up our Theology of the Body series again tomorrow here on Trending. I'll be back and we'll be talking about the riots in Hollywood over artificial intelligence. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Friday, I'll talk about an AI-triggered strike in Hollywood. You may have heard about it. Screenwriters and actors in the thousands protesting against Hollywood, wanting better wages, but wanting to address how artificial intelligence is taking away the worker's job. We'll talk about that as well as how to advise high school students 
to discern careers moving forward. Join me Friday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.